0: Open your Bibles. We are going to continue in the Word. And I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2 and 6. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2 and 6. I'm going to ask you to put your finger right there. And then we're going to jump right to the gospel story of the Christmas narrative. But I want to begin by reading Isaiah 60, verse 2 through 6. It says here, and you can see on the screen behind me, it says here. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth. But the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Now listen to this. This is the prophetic message of Christmas. Now pick up on the little things. It says, All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Look and see, for everyone is coming home. Where's home in Scripture? Jerusalem. That area surrounding Jerusalem. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried home. Your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy. For merchants from around the world will come to you. They will bring you the wealth of many lands. Vast caravans of camels will converge on you. The camels of Midian and Ephra, the people of Sheba, will bring gold and frankincense, and in some translation it also says myrrh, and will come worshiping the Lord. Now, we are going to now turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 2 all the way down. We're going to basically read the whole, the whole Christmas passage. But before we do, I just want to stop right here before we jump into anything. Did you see in Isaiah 60 that there were some very key phrases that were going on? That the nations were going to come home. That kings were going to come and worship. That sons and daughters were going to be brought back to their homeland. And that caravans of merchants were going to bring riches. Think about that imagery. We often read in Isaiah 60 passage and we just kind of get through the word or, or try, to, try to preach something through it. But, but now let's read the Christmas narrative. And let's see what the prophet Isaiah was speaking about so long before this ever happened. It says here in verse 1 in chapter 2 of Matthew, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn King of the Jews? We saw His star as it rose, and we have come to worship Him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. O you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Frankincense and myrrh when it was time to leave they returned their own to their own country by another route for god had warned them in a dream not to return to herod when we think about the christmas narrative we so often miss out on the big prophetic message that was going on that began in genesis and ran through the whole old testament As you notice that I not only read about the frankincense, gold, and myrrh, but it also talked about a a prophecy that was about Bethlehem. There's also another prophecy that was read during the, the candle turning on, since we can't light them, about Bethlehem. And when you look all throughout the Old Testament, all you see is this pointing sign to God's full redemption. And I really believe that the story, that we, narrative that we're going to look at this morning is one of the most profound examples of all of what was going on. Not just at the birth narrative, but what had taken place throughout all of Scripture. And so what I want you to do is I want to pray with you this morning before we really dive into it. And I want us to be able to ask God to put us in the place that we would be like these people in this narrative. That we would actually come to an understanding that what God is doing is so much more than how we've been living our lives. Because He has something ultimate for us. That these wise men had understood for us to learn. So Holy Spirit, I am going to ask you that you would open my heart to speak clear and concise. And that as we get closer to Christmas, God, there are times that I have been frustrated with this holiday season. That too often, God, it's about busyness. It's about running around. It's about spending money. It's about, it's about seeing family. It's about seeing people we don't want to see. It's about, it's about having to converge on, on everything. It's, it's overwhelming. It's, it's times, God, that I look at it that it's like almost doing more than I can. And God, I don't want that. We don't want that. We want to be able to enter into this week with the heart and the mind and the attitude of what we're going to learn this morning. So now, Holy Spirit, use Your Word to speak loudly to our souls. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We all know this story. We know it, I think, in some ways too well. That we look at a passage like this and it's almost like we recite it to get through it. That we do it because it's the right thing. We celebrate the baby. We celebrate Jesus. We celebrate all that's going on. But there's so many things that are going on in this passage that we, we overlook because we, we miss. There's too many things that complicate us that we miss the true heart of this passage. We know the passage that there was a a caravan of of individuals. Some are called the three kings. Some are called the three wise men. They're actually the three magi. Now, magi is a Latin word for a royal priesthood in Persia. Okay, These are Persians. Now, this word magi is not the first time that has ever come up in Scripture. Now let me explain why. Magi were royalty. They were like kings, but they weren't kings. They were people of high position. They had great wealth. They were educated, and their education was surrounded around, it was like a mixture between religion and astrology. Okay? Religion and astrology. And so what they would do is they would study the stars to understand God. And for many of them, they were studying the stars to understand God's plural that they would have believed in. And so, so much of what they had done was that actually what they were doing was they were taking their religion and making it a form of science. So everything that they had learned was in some ways not described as a religion, even though it really was. They defined it as a form of science. And so what they would do is they would watch the stars, they would understand the stars, and it would basically tell them about creation, about life, about the world. Now the reality is too, is that these men would have also practiced witchcraft. Okay? And witchcraft was only practiced as, as two ways appeasing either God or their gods, or for control. That's what the magic's used for. If you've ever met someone who's a witch or a warlock, really? They still exist? They really do. I've met them. I meet weird people. But in that, they would use this as a form of appeasing the gods or as a way of controlling others. They would use it to find out what God had a calling on their life, their destiny and their identity. And and so these men had come to an understanding that, that even God, the Creator God, was now speaking to them that something bigger was going on than they could ever, ever fathom. Now let me go a little bit deeper here. This word magi is used several times in Scripture. Do you remember uh, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? This is what he practiced. There was another person in Acts chapter 13 that that practiced the same form of witchcraft and astrology as these men. Matter of fact, when you go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, do you remember when Daniel was captured? He was captured. And when he was captured, he was put over a group of people. Do you know who Daniel was in charge of? The Magi. And so all throughout Scripture, you see people that had practiced these things. And when when Daniel was taken, he was brought to the land where these men would have been from. And so there's some way that this teaching of a Messiah, a heavenly king, had filtered all the way down to them throughout hundreds and hundreds of years. But in some supernatural form, these men knew that their Creator God was up to something. And they were going to follow a star that they had heard about through the ancient writings, which would have been the Old Testament And they were going to find this earthly slash heavenly king. You see, there's so much more to these magi than we just quickly read through. For some reason, in their studies of ancient writings and ancient religions and ancient faith, that in their readings and in their seeking true identity of who God is, the Holy Spirit Put it on their hearts to seek this child out. Now think about that. How cool is that? These men were foreigners. They weren't Jewish people. They weren't from the the chosen group of people. The tribe of David. They were not. They were foreigners from a distant land who more than likely through the reading of the old prophets that the Holy Spirit impressed on their hearts that they were to go and find this king. And so they set out on a journey. And oftentimes we think about three three magi riding on camels. And it was only then that they probably had a couple extra camels to, to load everything up and to, to make their trek. And more than likely, they were traveling for two years because the star would have more than likely, and this is not definitive, this is one theory, the moment that child was born, that star appeared over, over where they were. And so more than likely, they were traveling for two years. How do we know this? Because when they were traveling, they were traveling in this massive caravan. A massive caravan of probably 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 people because such wealthy individuals would have brought their families. And they would have brought a small army with them because of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. We think that they brought them like a coin and a bottle. They brought great wealth to this child. And so they had an army to protect these individuals and to protect their families. And we know this because when we read it in scripture that that Herod's people had seen a caravan and all of a sudden they were intimidated by who these individuals were and what they were searching for. And so when Herod saw this, he got nervous and anxious and he brought them in. It says that he was disturbed. And he brought them in and he, and he manipulated them. He played them. He, he used it as a way of saying, hey, let me, let, me, let me dine you. Let me bring you in. Let me celebrate you. Why are you in my land? And when he sat down with them and they ate and they talked, he realized that they were searching for the ultimate earthly heavenly king. And who do you think Herod thought that earthly, heavenly king was himself. And yet it wasn't. And so Herod manipulated manipulated them by saying, so how do you know this? Where did you hear about this? Where have you read this? Where is this coming from? And they explain that in their reading of ancient Scriptures, bless you, they were told That in the town of Bethlehem, a baby, a king, would be born. And so Herod, in anger and fear, sent them away to go find this baby. And said, hey, make sure that you come back and let me know so I can go worship them too. Now why do we believe that that they were traveling for two years? Because Herod said he got his officials together and said, let's kill all the children Two years old and younger. And so, more than likely, that would have been because that's how long these people were traveling. He wanted to make sure that every young boy was wiped out, that this king could never rule. And so, Herod was threatened by this baby, by this child. Even knowing that he was born in the town of Bethlehem. A lowly town. A town that is not like a Mawa or an Upper Saddle River or an Allendale where we would think that, that something special would come out of. This was a run-down village that once had a place of, of prosperity and power and much like a Patterson. And yet, the fear of Herod drove him to kill all the children. You see, there's certain things that we can fight about God or not, or Christ or not. But historically speaking, these things are written accounts, not just from the scriptures, but by historians such as Josephus and other individuals. And so the Magi left Herod. And they went and they found Jesus. And when they found this baby Jesus, and I, and I love it when we were little. Like it seems like, like, like we never get this picture. We think about three men coming before Him and just kneeling. It wasn't something like that. It would have been a caravan. A massive group of people that surrounded Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And as they all approached, you can see this picture of them that any time that they would stand before a king, they would have kneeled before them with their heads not even looking at them, holding their heads low. Presenting their gifts. And for two years, more than likely, these individuals traveled. Traveled. And for two years, they just followed the star. They didn't follow the compass. They followed the star. Which actually makes a lot of sense because of the lay of the land. I bet you they did a lot of traveling at night because of the weather. Their compass was their star. The Spirit was their energy that pushed them to find this child, not even realizing that they were part of fulfilling God's Scripture. How cool is that? More than likely, they had no idea that they were the ones that God had spoken to Isaiah about in Isaiah chapter sixty. That all these individuals were doing were being faithful to the urging and the prodding and the pulling and the nudging of their hearts. That as they felt the prodding and the pushing and the pulling and the nudging of their heart, they followed what God was calling them to. And in that, they were fulfilling Scripture. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if it's true that God has a calling for all of our lives, and that when we follow that pulling, that prodding, that nudging, that that pushing, that when we do that, that we are fulfilling His Word. That we are fulfilling His God-given calling. That when we were in our mother's womb, that He says, this is what Rob is going to do. This is what so-and-so is going to do. Just follow the nudge. Follow the push. Follow the prodding. And then one day we stand before God and we see that everything that He already planned has come true. The Magi. They weren't Jew- good Jewish people. They were pagans. We would call them evil. They were individuals that worshipped actually devils and demons. These were individuals that didn't even probably believe in a one creator God. They might have believed in the God of Daniel because of all that Daniel did. But in their area, they probably had all these other sub-gods all around. And even though Daniel's God was one of them, they probably worshipped other gods as well. And yet, God used them. Don't you love how arrogant we get as Christians? Seriously. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God uses the broken things of the world to do great and awesome things. And in this, He even used what we would call evil, spiritually demented individuals to fulfill His Scripture. Amen? Anyone ever feel spiritually demented? I've never used that phrase before. I just made that up. Anyone ever feel that way? Seriously? Seriously? Anyone ever struggle that can God fully use me? That God fully knows me? That in my brokenness and my stupid decisions and the little things that I don't do that He's going to eliminate me from His calling? Well, when you look at the Magi, that's not how God works. God draws us. God prods us. God pulls us into His direction. So the more we see Him, the more we don't want those things. The more we want His will and His calling and His purpose. And so they offered three gifts. More than likely, they were three gifts of a king. Let me just go over them real quickly. Myrrh was, a, was commonly an, uh, an anointing oil. Whenever a king came into power, that they would anoint the king with oil as a sign of royalty and God's position over them. Frankincense was a perfume as a sign of, of smelling the royalty of who they are. A a really wealthy perfume gives a sign of power and prestige. And gold, just like today, is one of the greatest signs of wealth. And all these were laid before Him. But then there's a spiritual meaning as well. We could see this in Scripture that when you look at gold and frankincense and myrrh that that there was definitely some kind of spiritual meaning going on that these these three men had no idea. The first was the gold was a sign of a king. Right? What kind of crown do they wear? Do they wear a silver crown? No, they wear a crown of gold. The frankincense is is an incense of the royal priesthood that we read about all throughout the Old Testament. That when the priest would go into the tabernacle, into the tent of meeting, that they would use frankincense as a sign. You know in the Catholic church when they're they're waving things back and forth, where did they pick that up? They didn't just make that up. That's something that the priest would do going into the tabernacle, into the temple, that they would just quickly allow that the frankincense would be all over the place as a sign that God was with them. But then myrrh, was a gift of death. Myrrh is used for embalming bodies after they died. And so you start seeing the role of Jesus. He's the king. He's a royal king. He's a royal priest through his royal death. And so there's so many different things that are going on. Imagine being Mary and Joseph. Like These are great gifts. What do they mean? Why do they have to bring the myrrh? right? Seriously. Hey, I'll take these two. You can keep that. You ever get a gift like that? Right? It's like the socks you don't want for Christmas. No, the 12 black pairs of socks that you always get. But when you look at this passage, we get so self-centered around the gifts the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. We literally get wrapped up that that the whole purpose for these individuals in this whole caravan was to just lay the gifts before this child. Right? It's in some ways why we do what we do at Christmas. We want to be like the Magi. We want to bring our kids the the different gifts as symbols of our love and affection for them. I think sometimes we overdo it in a way that we almost worship our kids more than we really should. Our kids are not to be worshipped. We are not to be worshipping one another. When I give a gift, it's as a sign of love, appreciation. Appreciation. It's not a sign of value for the people that I care about. But in our culture, in our world, our gift giving has almost become a sign of worshiping individuals. Because when you really look at the original Christmas story, these gifts that were presented to this child were an act of worship. That's all they were. Now let's see what the ultimate gift is here. In Psalm 51.17, David wrote this, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Hosea 6.6, 6, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. When we look at the story of the magi and these gifts, the gifts are a token of their heart and their compassion and their passion for the one in the manger. These gifts are an ultimate gift. It wasn't, it wasn't a coin. It wasn't a percentage. It was an overwhelming amount as a sign of saying, this is how much we adore you. This is how much we worship you. But when you really get down to the heart of, of this journey, the ultimate gift were the Magi. The ultimate gift were these individuals. The ultimate gift was this caravan. The ultimate gifts were their hearts. Their ultimate gifts were their minds. The ultimate gift was the moment that they said yes to the star and to God and as they traveled and as they wrestled and as they pulled and as they turned and they struggled with their emotions, they struggled with the journey, they struggled with the, with the terrain and they struggled with everything. The ultimate gift was how their hearts were being more and more excited and drawn and pulled and prodded to the creator of the universe. And at the end of the day, the only gift, the only gift was their lives. The only gift that the Magi brought was their lives. and that's the Christmas story when I was driving to church this morning I thought about a couple people who did that in scripture and I think about the widow you know the story of the widow's mite she gave nothing but she gave it all Think about the Apostle John. I mean, there's a lot of the Apostles and disciples. You look at John. It says that he was the one that Jesus loved. Now, all the disciples love Jesus the same, but when I think about it, I think about John. The only gift that you can give Jesus this morning... Is your life. That's it. Would you bow with me? God, there's nothing else to say except simply this. that the ultimate gift that we can give you is our lives. And so I ask you that this morning that we would be willing to come to the communion table bring our lives. And that we would rethink everything. Everything. And that this Christmas season would be a season not about how much or how little that we would stop playing these games with You because You see through all of them. God, I even get mad when I hear churches talk about people's times and talents and treasures. It's like we we set things apart from You. We We talk about everything separately. Like, these are my talents, God, I'm going to give You. These are my treasures god i'm going to give you this is my time that i'm going to give you that god that we never fully get to experience the fullness of you because we've never given you our all and today jesus as the pastor of the plant i put a spear in the ground against the enemy and i say no more we will be people who give all we will give you our lives we will give you our hearts We will give you our minds. We will give you our struggles. We will give you our weaknesses. We will give you our victories. We will give you our quietness. Jesus, I want to be a magi. desire to be a magi I want to invite you to the communion table if you desire to be a magi a tribe of people who desire to give God all things I want to invite you to eat and drink I want to invite Jeremy and Hyde to pass the elements to you as you come down. But do me a favor, because you ain't doing it for me. Before you come up. And truly answer the question, God. Do I want to be a Magi? Do I want to be of the tribe of people that give you my all? And so I invite you, all who desire to be of the people of the Magi, to come and eat and drink of what they saw in the manger. Amen.